Hello, and welcome to this CCH CPE podcast, Education Tax Incentives, Opportunities, and Strategies. Developed by noted practitioners, educators, and authors, Sidney Kess, Barbara Weltman, and Charles Herbst. In this podcast CPE course, you'll learn about major tax incentives for higher education and new developments in this area. Our course consists of this audio session you're listening to, along with reading materials, study questions, and a final exam, which you'll need to complete to earn valuable CPE credit. Please visit the CCH CPE podcast site at cchpodcast.com, where you can enroll in a CCH CPE podcast course and take the final exam. There, you will also be able to download course study materials. The study materials for this CCH CPE podcast provide citations to CCH's tax research services. The standard federal tax reporter, the tax research consultant, and the federal tax guide. In your study materials, we refer you to the specific paragraphs in these services where each subject is covered in greater detail. If you are a subscriber to the CCH Internet Tax Research Network, you will have the added capability of direct linking from the study materials to the citations and research references online. At the CCH CPE podcast site, you will also be able to enroll in the final quizzer for this course. We suggest that you listen to this podcast course and follow along in the course study materials that you can download at cchpodcast.com. You may print out the study materials or view them on screen. Included with the study materials are self-check review questions with answers provided. These learning activities give you the opportunity to test your understanding of the material discussed in this podcast and help prepare you for the final exam. At certain times during the podcast, we will ask you to check your knowledge of what we've discussed by answering study questions. The answers to these study questions are provided so you can check how well you're doing. They can be found at the end of your study materials. You may pause this podcast at any time to access the CCH Tax Research linked material or to review the study questions. After you have listened to the complete podcast and reviewed the study questions and answers, you will be ready to take the final quizzer. You may print out the final quizzer for review and then submit your answers directly on our CCH CPE podcast site. Immediately after you submit your completed final quizzer, it will be automatically graded. If you successfully complete the final quizzer with a grade of 70% or greater, you will receive the recommended CPE credit. A CPE certificate of completion will be awarded and you can print out the certificate for your files. Please refer to the CCH CPE podcast site at cchpodcast.com for complete details. So now, on with our program. Let's begin our review of education tax savings opportunities and strategies. There are different types of incentives for higher education. Some are aimed at saving for college, while others help to pay for college through tax savings. Most of these incentives were created or enhanced in various tax bills over the last decade. Most notably, the Taxpayer Relief Act of 1997 and the Economic Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2001 each added new tax breaks for financing higher education and greatly liberalized the terms of those breaks that were already available. The more recent Pension Protection Act of 2006 and the Tax Relief and Health Care Act of 2006 then extended income tax breaks for education. As we already mentioned, some breaks encourage saving for college while others help to defray the cost of paying for it. Some breaks can be used in combination. Others are mutually exclusive. In all, there are 11 major tax incentives for higher education, and we'll spend some time discussing all of them in this podcast. The tax incentives that help saving for higher education include Qualified Tuition Programs Coverdale Education Savings Accounts, also known as Coverdale ESAs, and the U.S. Savings Bond Interest Exclusion. 
The tax breaks that help pay for education expenses include scholarships and tuition reduction plans, employer-provided education assistance, gift tax exclusion for direct payment of education costs, above-the-line deduction for higher education expenses, education credits, penalty-free IRA withdrawals, and the deduction for work-related education costs. Finally, there is a break for those who borrowed funds for higher education expenses, which is the student loan interest deduction. Let's turn our attention to qualified tuition programs and look at how they are treated for tax purposes and the difference between a prepaid tuition plan and a state savings plan. Today, almost every state has some type of qualified tuition program in place. These plans are sometimes referred to as 529 plans after the Internal Revenue Code section that authorized them. Generally, two types of plans exist, prepaid tuition plans and savings plans. Prepaid tuition plans, which are the most common type, are plans in which contributions are used to guarantee payment of state tuition or some comparable amount. Since 2002, private colleges and other institutions have been able to offer prepaid tuition plans in addition to the state plans. Here's an example of how they generally work. Hilda Spear, mother of 8-year-old Jimmy Spear, prepays for his state tuition. When Jimmy is 18 and goes to a state university, the tuition will be fully covered. If Jimmy goes to an out-of-state school, some plans may allow for payment of those expenses. If Jimmy does not attend college or dies, the plan may refund contributions less an administrative charge. The savings plan is set up as a trust and it may or may not provide for guaranteed returns. A good resource to check to determine whether a state has a tuition savings plan or another state has a plan for which one is eligible to make contributions to is www.collegesavings.org. A parent's legal obligation of support to use funds from a savings plan to pay for a child's education remains an open question. In some divorce situations, state courts have imposed a requirement that a parent provide college costs. Theoretically, the parent could be taxed on payments from the trust if state law imposes a parental obligation of support to provide a college education. At present, there has been no IRS ruling on this specific issue. Also, most children who attend college are no longer minors. Thus, the parental obligation of support may no longer apply to college expenses. The Small Business Job Protection Act of 1996 clarified the tax treatment of qualified tuition programs for the state, for contributors, and for beneficiaries. The Economic Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2001 later expanded the benefits of this program. Note that since 2002, withdrawals for qualified higher education costs are no longer taxable to the beneficiary and since 2004 in the case of withdrawals from private prepaid tuition plans. This favorable treatment for qualified withdrawals had been scheduled to sunset after 2010, but it has been made permanent. Let's take a look now at the income tax treatment of qualified tuition programs. Qualified tuition programs themselves are not subject to federal income tax. Contributions are not taxed to beneficiaries or contributors. Earnings are not taxed to beneficiaries or contributors while the funds remain in the plan. Amounts distributed to pay for qualified higher education cost or educational benefits provided are not taxable to the beneficiary. However, non-qualified withdrawals are taxed to the beneficiary using commercial annuity rules. As such, only a portion of the payments are taxable, while the balance is considered a return of contributions. Here's a practice pointer. While contributions to the program are not deductible for federal income tax purposes, states, however, may provide a deduction from state income tax for contributions. For example, under New York's program, an annual deduction of up to $5,000 per taxpayer or $10,000 on a joint return is permitted. Contributions can continue until the aggregate balance is $235,000. This limit may be adjusted in the future. So don't forget to check the applicable state rules and impact when you are developing your client's education savings planning strategies. What are qualified higher education costs? Well, they include tuition, fees, books, 
supplies, and for students who attend at least half-time, room and board, up to the school's posted rate, or $2,500 per year for students living off-campus but not at home. Distributions to the contributor, that is, refunds, are included in the contributor's gross income to the extent they exceed contributions made. A 10% penalty applies to such non-qualified distributions with certain exceptions. These exceptions include death, disability, or receipt of a scholarship by the beneficiary. The Military Families Tax Relief Act of 2003 also provided an exception in the case of Military Service Academy appointments. There is another important exception to both inclusion in income and the 10% penalty. There is no inclusion to the extent that the distribution is transferred to the credit of another beneficiary within 60 days. This rule also applies to a change in beneficiary designation. There is a broad class of beneficiaries to which transfers can be made, including step-siblings, spouses of family members, and first cousins. Although transferable, an account must have a designated living beneficiary. This rollover exception does not apply to Coverdale ESAs, which we'll discuss later. How are qualified tuition programs treated for gift tax purposes? Contributions are treated as completed present interest gifts when they are made and are eligible for the annual gift tax exclusion. If contributions exceed the annual gift tax exclusion, then the contributor can elect to treat the contribution as having been made rateably over five years. A gift tax return must be filed if the contribution exceeds the annual gift tax exclusion even though the five-year rule applies. Here's an example of how this works. In 2007, Pamela Dilbeck, a widowed grandmother, contributes $60,000 to a state tuition program for her grandchild. She must file a gift tax return even though she can treat the contribution as having been made in $12,000 increments in 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, and 2011 and thus owe no gift tax. If the contributor dies before the end of the five-year period, any amount not yet accounted for, that is yet to be offset by an annual exclusion, is included in the contributor's estate. So, for example, let's say that Pamela from the previous example dies in 2009. In this case, $24,000, which is the amount that would have been taken into account in 2010 and 2011, is included in her estate. As you can see, this gift tax election offers a significant estate planning strategy for wealthy individuals. Consider this. Joe and Linda Bobick, a married couple, have five grandchildren. Joe and Linda can each give away $300,000 at one time for a total of $600,000. In effect, over half a million dollars is removed from their estates at no transfer tax cost. Assuming they outlive the five-year period, Effectively, $270,000 in estate taxes will have been saved, based on a 45% estate tax rate. However, from a different perspective, using the traditional annual gift tax exclusion, which we'll talk about later in this podcast, to make direct transfers to grandchildren and pay education costs to the college may be preferable, thereby multiplying the tax-free transfers to or for the benefit of the grandchildren. Although there are no ordinary income taxes due as the result of a qualified rollover, the Working Families Tax Relief Act of 2004 added Code Section 529C-5B, which provides that the rollover will be subject to gift tax and generation-skipping transfer tax. Unless the rollover beneficiary is a member of the family of the old beneficiary and is assigned to the same or a higher generation as the old beneficiary. Now let's discuss what we'll call the repeal of the repeal. Prior to passage of the Pension Protection Act of 2006, several of the economic advantages of qualified tuition plans were set to expire at the end of 2010. This would have returned the state of these plans to the way the law stood prior to 2001. In particular, withdrawals from qualified tuition plan accounts would have been taxable income to the student beneficiary. While it was widely believed that the tax-free treatment would be extended, some individuals and their advisors were reluctant to use qualified tuition plans until they knew for sure that they wouldn't go away after 2010. Act Section 1304 of the Pension Protection Act of 2006 repealed the so-called sunset provisions 
of EGTRRA, the Economic Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2001, as they related to qualified tuition plans. Both the sunset provision of EGTRRA and this repealing provision are non-internal revenue code provisions of these statutes. The Pension Protection Act of 2006 also added Code Section 529F, which allows the IRS to prescribe regulations for administering qualified tuition plans and specifically regulations to prevent abuse of qualified tuition plans, including gift and estate tax regulations. Also, the Deficit Reduction Act of 2005, which was enacted in February 2006, made some non-tax changes that add to the attractiveness of 529 plans. For example, funds in a 529 plan are no longer considered to be the assets of the student for financial aid purposes. At this time, please refer to the study question in your outline. Okay, that concludes our discussion of qualified tuition plans. Let's turn now to our next education incentive, Coverdell Education Savings Accounts, or ESAs. In this section, we'll discuss the requirements for a Coverdell Education Savings Account, the contribution limits of a Coverdell ESA, and the tax treatment of excess contributions, the income limit for contributions to a Coverdell ESA, and the income tax treatment of distributions from a Coverdell ESA. First, the requirements. A Coverdell ESA, which used to be called an Education IRA, is an education savings program authorized by Code Section 530 and set up as a trust or custodial account for a designated beneficiary. This program was greatly expanded in 2002 when Coverdell ESAs could begin to be used to finance elementary and secondary educational expenses. For Coverdell ESAs, a designated beneficiary is any child under 18. Thus, a beneficiary need not be a taxpayer's child, and there is no relationship requirement. The beneficiary can be the taxpayer's grandchild, niece or nephew, or even a next-door neighbor. A taxpayer can open Coverdell ESAs at any bank or other institution approved to serve as a trustee or custodian. For contributions, there is a limit of a total of $2,000 per year on behalf of any designated beneficiary. The $2,000 limit is an aggregate figure, which means that contributions can be placed in a single Coverdell ESA or in multiple Coverdell ESAs. If more than $2,000 is contributed per child, for example, a parent contributes $2,000 and an aunt contributes $400, the excess over $2,000, $400 in this instance, is treated as an excess contribution. If excess contributions are not withdrawn from the child's account by the due date of the tax return, a 6% penalty applies. Note that contributions to Coverdell ESAs must be made only in cash. Property contributions, such as stock, are not allowed. Generally, the gift tax treatment of Coverdell ESA contributions is the same that applies to qualified tuition programs which we discussed earlier. Note, however, that the five-year rule for contributions does not apply. Let's now talk about the income limit on a contributor. A taxpayer may make a full contribution only if modified adjusted gross income is no more than $190,000 on a joint return, or $95,000 for singles. The contribution limit phases out for modified AGI between $190,000 and $220,000 on a joint return, and between $95,000 and $110,000 for singles. Consider this example. Jack Howell, a single parent, has modified AGI of $96,500 in 2007. His top contribution is $1,800. This modified AGI limit is not adjusted annually for inflation, as is the case for the U.S. Savings Bond Interest Exclusion and Education Credits that we'll discuss later in this podcast. When we talk about taxation of Coverdell ESAs, it's important to know that earnings on Coverdell ESA investments are not subject to tax when earned. Distributions are excludable from the income of the beneficiary to the extent they do not exceed qualified education expenses incurred during the year the distributions are made. The term qualified education expenses is liberally defined to include the following. Tuition fees and room and board if the beneficiary is enrolled on at least half-time basis. Room and board is the posted rate by the school or $2,500 per year for students living off campus but not at home. 
A beneficiary need not be enrolled on any special basis to treat tuition as an eligible expense. Thus, even part-time attendance makes tuition a qualified higher education expense. Elementary and secondary education expenses include parochial school tuition and other expenses such as uniforms, extended day programs, and transportation. Computer technology expenses are also included, as well as Internet service. If a beneficiary takes a distribution for any reason other than to pay qualified education expenses, a portion of the distribution is taxable. The taxable portion is the portion that represents earnings that have accumulated tax-free in the account. With certain exceptions, a 10% penalty applies to such non-qualified distributions. These exceptions include death, disability, or receipt of a scholarship by the beneficiary. The 2003 Military Families Tax Relief Act also provided an exception in the case of Military Service Academy appointments. A distribution from a Coverdale ESA can be rolled over tax-free to another Coverdale ESA for the same beneficiary or for certain other designated beneficiaries, children of the beneficiary, stepchildren, siblings and their children, parents, grandparents, stepparents, and spouses of these people. The same 60-day rollover period applicable to IRAs applies to Coverdale ESAs. The earnings portion of a Coverdale ESA not used for qualified higher education expenses by the time the beneficiary reaches age 30 and not rolled over to an eligible designated beneficiary is treated as a deemed distribution. This deemed distribution occurs within 30 days of attaining age 30 or within 30 days of the death of the beneficiary, whichever comes first. However, if a family has younger children, the unused portion of the Coverdell ESA can be rolled over to a Coverdell ESA of a younger child. Once the youngest child reaches 30, there is no more opportunity for deferral. It becomes taxable to the youngest child. Coverdell ESA accounts may be rolled over to a qualified Section 529 tuition plan. There is a special rule for a special needs beneficiary. Contributions may continue on behalf of this beneficiary beyond age 18. Also, distributions do not have to commence when a special needs beneficiary attains age 30. A special needs beneficiary is a person who, because of a physical, mental or emotional condition including a learning disability requires additional time to complete his or her education. Here's an observation. A taxpayer may contribute to a Coverdale ESA even if the taxpayer also makes contributions to a qualified tuition program. Qualified excludable expenses can only be claimed once. The same expense cannot support both a qualified tuition program tax-free withdrawal and a Coverdale ESA tax-free withdrawal. If a taxpayer receives tax-free distributions from a Coverdale ESA, the taxpayer may claim a HOPE scholarship credit or lifetime learning credit that year, provided that both the Coverdale ESA withdrawal and either the HOPE or lifetime learning credit are not being used toward the same expense. At this time, please refer to the study question in your outline. Let's move on now to our next subject, the U.S. Savings Bond Interest Exclusion. In this section, we'll discuss the requirements for claiming the U.S. Savings Bond Interest Exclusion for higher education expenses and the effect of distributions from a qualified tuition program and expenses for which education credits are taken. Let's start with the requirements for the exclusion. The Internal Revenue Code, under Code Section 315, provides an interest exclusion with respect to U.S. savings bonds used to pay for certain higher education expenses. U.S. savings bonds mean Series EE, issued after 1989, and I bonds, which were first issued in 1999. The requirements to claim an interest exclusion are as follows. The taxpayer must be at least age 24 in the year the bonds are purchased. The bonds must be put in the name of the taxpayer or the joint name of taxpayer and spouse. That is, bonds in a child's name are not eligible for the exclusion. The bonds must be used to pay higher education costs for the taxpayer, spouse, or dependents. Grandparents owning bonds cannot claim the exclusion unless the grandchildren are their dependents and Bonds must be used only for qualified higher education costs. Qualified costs include tuition and fees for a college, university, or vocation school that meet federal financial aid standards. Qualified costs do not include room and board. 
qualified costs are reduced by tax-free scholarships or fellowship grants. Also, the taxpayer may not claim the exclusion with respect to any cost used to figure education credits. Note that bonds can be redeemed and the funds contributed to a qualified tuition program. In this case, the contribution is treated as a qualified higher education cost, so that the interest is excludable. Also, bear in mind that distributions from a qualified tuition program or expenses for which education credits are taken reduce the amount of qualified higher education costs under the U.S. Savings Bond Interest Exclusion. The parent's modified adjusted gross income must not exceed a set amount. For 2007, the full exclusion applies if a modified AGI is below $98,400 on a joint return or $65,600 for singles. A partial exclusion applies to those with modified AGI between $98,400 and $128,400 on a joint return or between $65,600 and $80,600 for singles. Finally, Note that a married person cannot claim the exclusion, regardless of income, unless a joint return is filed, or the person qualifies to file a return as unmarried. At this time, please refer to the study question in your outline. That completes our discussion of the U.S. Savings Bond Interest Exclusion. Let's now briefly look at scholarships and tuition reduction plans. Qualified scholarships can cover tuition, fees, books, supplies, and equipment. If, as a condition of the scholarship or tuition reduction, the student is required to teach, provide research, or other services, the exclusion does not apply. Tuition reductions for the employees of educational organizations and spouses and dependents of employees are also excluded from income. This exclusion includes only education below the graduate level. An exception to the undergraduate rule is made for qualified tuition reduction programs for graduate students who are teaching or engaged in research activities for the organization. Tuition reductions may be provided to a student at an educational institution other than the one where the employee works. Finally, note that there are no income limits on the student in order to qualify for the qualified scholarship or tuition reduction exclusion. Now, let's take a quick look at the area of employer-provided education assistance. Employees may be eligible for an exclusion of up to $5,250 in employer-provided education assistance. This amount is not indexed for inflation. The exclusion provision with respect to graduate-level courses provided in Code Section 127 was made permanent by EGTRRA legislation in 2001. However, this provision expires after 2010. The exclusion applies without regard to an individual's AGI. Thus, it may provide a real tax benefit when no other benefit may be available. The exclusion applies only to tuition and related expenses. The 2001 EGTRRA legislation expanded this benefit to cover graduate courses. Courses need not be directly job-related, but do not include payment for courses involving sports, games, or hobbies. The employer treats the education assistance as a tax-free benefit on the employee's W-2 form. Note that if a student's employer pays for courses, the student cannot claim a HOPE scholarship credit or lifetime learning credit. At this time, please refer to the study question in your outline. In the area of the gift tax exclusion for direct payment of education expenses, there are a couple of points we'd like to make related to dollar limits to the exclusion and which education expenses paid directly to an educational institution are excluded from gift tax. Gifts made directly to an educational institution for tuition are not subject to any dollar limit under Code Section 2503. Thus, taxpayers can make them in addition to the annual gift tax limit, which is $12,000 in 2007. The exclusion is limited to the payment of tuition. It does not apply to room and board or other education costs. The donor must pay it directly to the educational institution. This exclusion applies to any tuition. Thus, it applies to primary and secondary school costs. In a 2006 letter ruling, the IRS concluded that a grandparent who made non-refundable prepaid tuition arrangements directly to a school for six grandchildren for their education through grade 12 
qualified as exempt for the gift tax under Code Section 2503E and the Generation Skipping Transfer Tax under Code Section 2611. This provides an opportunity for a wealthy individual to exclude a substantial sum from gift and estate tax. Additionally, the donee need not be related to the donor for the exclusion to be effective. At this time, please refer to the study question in your outline. Let's talk about the above-the-line deduction for higher education expenses and how the deduction is affected by other education assistance provisions. The Tax Relief and Health Care Act of 2006 extended the above-the-line deduction for higher education expenses to cover the 2006 and 2007 tax years. For the years 2004 through 2007, taxpayers may deduct qualified tuition and related expenses of up to $4,000 per year for single taxpayers with incomes up to $65,000 or $130,000 for married taxpayers filing jointly. In addition, under Code Section 222, single taxpayers with incomes between $65,000 and $80,000 and married taxpayers filing jointly with incomes between $130,000 and $160,000 may deduct up to $2,000 per year of qualified tuition and related expenses. Note that no deduction is allowed for married taxpayers who file separately and that these dollar amounts are not indexed for inflation. For 2002 and 2003, the deduction was limited to qualified tuition and related expenses of up to $3,000 per year for both years. The deduction was limited to taxpayers with incomes up to $65,000 for single taxpayers or $130,000 for married taxpayers filing jointly. Unless Congress extends it, this deduction expires at the end of 2007. However, this is a popular deduction and has become one of the so-called extenders that Congress routinely renews. For budget reasons, these extenders are renewed on a temporary rather than a permanent basis. For tax years after 2007, you'll have to check current law to determine if this deduction has been extended. Scholarships and employer-provided educational assistance received both reduce the amount of this deduction. Anti-double benefit rules deny the use of this deduction if HOPE scholarship credits or lifetime learning credits are used. The amount of the deduction is also reduced by an amount equal to the U.S. savings bond interest exclusion claimed and any withdrawals of tax-free income from qualified tuition programs and Coverdale ESAs. Let's move on to the area of education credits. Here we'll discuss several items including the difference between the HOPE Scholarship Credit and the Lifetime Learning Credit. The income limitations on taxpayers claiming an education credit. Who can claim an education credit? Which expenses qualify for the credit? And the importance of determining the most favorable education credit or deduction to take. Let's begin by looking at the difference between the HOPE Scholarship and Lifetime Learning Credits. The two types of education credits provided by Code Section 25A are the HOPE Scholarship Credit and the Lifetime Learning Credit. The HOPE Scholarship Credit is equal to the lesser of either qualified tuition expenses paid or 100% of the first $1,100 of qualified expenses and 50% of the next $1,100 of qualified tuition expenses for a maximum credit of $1,650 for each of the first two years of college. The credit applies on a per-student basis, and a taxpayer may claim the HOPE credit only with respect to qualified expenses for the first two years of higher education. The HOPE credit cannot be claimed if the student has any state or federal felony conviction for possession of a controlled substance, and the dollar limit of the HOPE credit is indexed for inflation. Note, tuition and related fees for graduate-level courses are not eligible for the HOPE credit but may be eligible for the Lifetime Learning Credit. The Lifetime Learning Credit, on the other hand, is 20% of the first $10,000 of out-of-pocket qualified tuition and related expenses for a top credit of $2,000. This credit applies on a per-taxpayer basis. Note, the current credit is higher than it used to be. Prior to 2003, the credit was 20% of the first $5,000 of such expenses for a top credit of $1,000. There is also some additional benefit with the credits in the form of hurricane tax relief. 
for students attending a school in the Gulf Opportunity Zone in 2005 or 2006, both the HOPE credit and lifetime learning credit amounts were significantly increased. The HOPE credit is increased to 100% of the first $2,000 in qualified tuition and expenses and 50% of the next $2,000 of qualified tuition and related expenses for a maximum credit of $3,000 per student. The lifetime learning credit rate is doubled to 40% of the first $10,000 of out-of-pocket qualified tuition and related expenses per taxpayer for a total maximum credit of $4,000. These increased amounts apply to attendance at a school in the Gulf Opportunity Zone. The residence of the student or taxpayer need not be located in the Gulf Opportunity Zone. Here's how this works. Take as an example that in 2006, Charlie Chicagoan is a junior at Tulane University in New Orleans. His parents paid $15,000 in tuition on Charlie's behalf. Assuming they otherwise qualify for the lifetime learning credit, Charlie's parents may also claim a $4,000 credit on their 2006 return. A question that comes up is how do you coordinate between the HOPE scholarship credit and the lifetime learning credit? Generally, a taxpayer must choose among the two credits and the above-the-line deduction for higher education expenses depending on whichever option is more favorable. Let's look at an example. Wilma Nazal's son Patrick, who is a freshman in college, has expenses exceeding $2,000. Wilma cannot take both the HOPE credit and the lifetime learning credit for Patrick. However, she can take a HOPE credit for her son and the lifetime learning credit for her daughter, Laura, who is a senior. Alternatively, she could choose to take the above-the-line deduction for higher education expenses for expenses paid for both children, assuming her income does not exceed set limits. The education credits share a number of eligibility requirements. The modified AGI of the taxpayer claiming the credit cannot exceed a threshold amount. Modified AGI is AGI figured without the foreign earned income exclusion. In 2007, a full credit can only be claimed by those with modified AGI below $47,000 for singles or $94,000 on a joint return. The credit phases out for singles with MAGI between $47,000 and $57,000 or between $94,000 and $114,000 on a joint return. Note that these limits are indexed for inflation. For example, take Bruce and Lana Nichols, whose modified AGI is $104,000, and they have qualified expenses of $2,000. The maximum amount of the lifetime learning credit is $200. Note that married persons must file jointly to claim a credit. Another eligibility requirement is that the credit can be claimed only for qualified expenses of the taxpayer, the taxpayer's spouse, and or an eligible dependent. Here's a practice pointer. If the parent's modified AGI precludes him or her from claiming a credit, then the child can claim it, even though the parent paid the expenses, as long as the parent forgoes the dependency exemption for the child. The child, of course, must have a tax liability in order to benefit from claiming the credit. And the child cannot claim his or her own personal exemption because he still qualifies as the parent's dependent. For the HOPE scholarship credit, during the year the student must be enrolled at least half-time in one of the first two years of post-secondary education in a program leading to a degree, certificate, or other recognized educational credential for at least one academic period, for example, a semester, trimester, or quarter. No similar requirement exists for the lifetime learning credit, where even one course may entitle a taxpayer to a credit. The credit applies only to qualified expenses. These expenses include tuition and related expenses such as fees required to be paid in order to be enrolled or attend the institution. Not treated as qualified expenses are amounts paid for a course involving sports, games, or hobbies, unless they are part of a degree program, room, board, equipment, transportation, student activity fees, insurance, books, equipment, and other personal living expenses. Qualified expenses must be out-of-pocket expenses, that is, amounts paid with savings, earnings, gifts, inheritances, and loans. 
expenses paid with a Pell Grant or other tax-free scholarship, a distribution from a qualified tuition program, Coverdell ESA, or employer-provided educational assistance are not considered out-of-pocket expenses. The student can waive tax-free treatment for distributions from Coverdale ESAs or qualified tuition programs in order to allow the parent to claim the HOPE scholarship credit. The credit generally applies only to expenses paid in the academic period to which they relate. However, payment of expenses before the academic period beginning in January, February, or March can be taken into account when paid. A taxpayer may be limited to the lifetime learning credit because of certain conditions. For example, unlike the HOPE credit, students need not be enrolled at least half-time. Even one course may give rise to a lifetime learning credit. Also, there is no limit on the number of years the credit can be taken. While the HOPE credit applies only for the first two years of higher education, a taxpayer may take the lifetime learning credit even for graduate-level courses. A final point. The HOPE credit cannot be claimed with respect to a student who has a felony conviction for possessing or distributing a controlled substance, but there is no similar ban for the lifetime learning credit. At this time, please review the study questions in your outline. That completes our review of education credits. Now, let's shift gears and briefly talk about penalty-free IRA withdrawals. We'll start with the requirements for penalty-free withdrawals. IRA owners under age 59 and a half can withdraw funds from their accounts penalty-free if the funds are used to pay qualified higher education expenses for the taxpayer, the taxpayer's spouse, or a child or grandchild of the taxpayer or the taxpayer's spouse. The taxpayer must include the distribution in income and pay income tax on it. The taxpayer avoids only the 10% early distribution penalty that would otherwise apply. Qualified higher education expenses here include not only tuition and fees, but also books, supplies, and equipment required for enrollment. They also include room and board if the student is enrolled at least half-time. Note, the waiver of the 10% penalty also applies to Roth IRA distributions that meet these requirements. However, education distributions are not one of the special events entitling tax-free withdrawals of earnings from a Roth IRA. Here's a practice tip. Grandparents who are eligible to tap their IRAs to help their grandchildren pay for college may want to pay the funds directly to the educational institution to avoid the annual gift tax exclusion limit, which is $12,000 in 2007. The law strictly limits the timing of withdrawals to pay qualified expenses. The withdrawal from the IRA and the payment of qualified expenses must occur within the same calendar year. In one case, a taxpayer who took two distributions from her IRA in 2001 to pay down credit card debt incurred in 1999 and 2000 from paying qualified higher education expenses was not penalty-free because the 2001 withdrawal related to 1999 and 2000 education payments. This was the Lauder-Beckert case. In another case, the Ambata case, a 2002 IRA distribution was used to pay qualified expenses for 2003 and 2004 and so were not penalty-free. Under a 2005 letter ruling, the usual 60-day IRA rollover rule cannot be waived merely because funds were used to cover higher education costs. In this case, a parent took an IRA distribution because of problems processing his free application for federal student aid, and things were not resolved within the 60-day rollover period. At this time, please refer to the study question in your outline. In the area of deductions for education costs, there are now a few things we'd like to mention. First, a taxpayer can deduct the cost of education undertaken to maintain or improve skills required on his or her current job or to meet the requirements of the current employer or applicable law or regulations as a condition to the retention of current employment or salary. This is under Code Section 162. Deductible expenses here include tuition, books, supplies, and the cost of travel, board, and lodging if the education is away from home. A person need not enroll on any particular basis. The deduction applies to any educational course, including seminars, correspondence study courses, and continuing education courses. However, the deduction does not apply to education leading to a new trade or business. 
Some of you listening to this podcast may be interested to note that CPAs who attend law school cannot deduct their cost, even though they continue to act as CPAs following law school. The reason is that attendance at law school qualifies them for a new trade or business, namely that of being a lawyer. A deduction for education costs is an unreimbursed, itemized deduction subject to the 2% of AGI floor. So, some or even all of the deduction may be lost because of the 2% limit. However, self-employed individuals can take their educational expenses as a deduction on Schedule C, and the deduction is not subject to the 2% limit. At this time, please refer to the study question in your outline. What about interest on student loans? Taxpayers may be eligible for an above-the-line deduction for interest on a student loan. This means that even non-itemizers may be able to write off this interest expense. This includes voluntary payments of interest during forbearance periods. Code Section 221 provides an interest deduction of up to $2,500. The deduction can be claimed by taxpayers for loans taken to allow them, their spouses or dependents, to attend an eligible educational institution. The loan need not be a guaranteed or subsidized student loan. As long as it is used for eligible costs, the deduction can be taken. For this deduction, the definition of eligible costs is the most liberal of that for any tax incentive. Eligible costs here include tuition and fees, books, equipment, room and board, and any other necessary expenses, for example, for transportation, as long as the student was enrolled at least half-time. Prior to 2002, this deduction applied only for interest made during the first 60 months in which interest payments are required on the loan. The 2001 EGTRRA legislation extended the deduction to the entire repayment period. There is a limit on deduction. In 2007, the deduction is limited to those with modified AGI of $55,000 or less or $110,000 on a joint return. The deduction phases out for those with modified AGI between $55,000 and $70,000, or between $110,000 and $140,000 on a joint return. Here's a quick example. In 2007, Philip Schmitz, a single parent with modified AGI of $60,000, pays interest on a student loan. Only $1,667 is deductible due to the phase-out for the deduction. Again, here no deduction is allowed for married persons who file separate returns. Also note that the modified AGI limits are indexed for inflation. As we near the end of this podcast, we want to make sure we cover a very important subject namely the implications of the sunsetting of the 2001 EGTRRA legislation. Section 901 of EGTRRA, the Economic Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2001, repeals all of the provisions of the Act on December 31, 2010. As a result, the tax climate may be very different in 2011 and beyond. Generally speaking, children born in 1992 will reach college age in 2011, the year after the expiration. In the Pension Protection Act passed in 2006, the provisions of EGTRRA as they related to Section 529 Qualified Tuition Plans have been made permanent. In the Tax Relief and Health Care Act passed later in 2006, the above-the-line deduction for higher education expenses under Code Section 222 has been extended through 2007. Although it is highly likely that Congress will extend other provisions of EGTRRA, make them permanent, or replace them with other comparable benefits, many of these programs will be quite different. Highlights of the changes that would occur if the rules are allowed to sunset include Tax-free withdrawals from Coverdell ESAs would be limited to only higher education expenses and exclude elementary, secondary, or computer education expenses. Coverdale ESA contributions would be limited to $500 per beneficiary. Employer-provided education assistance would expire, although some benefits could still be available as a working condition fringe benefit. Although education credits would continue, any distribution from a Coverdale ESA would make the student ineligible for these credits in the year the distribution was taken. And finally, 
student loan interest would be deductible only for the first 60 months of repayment. These are significant issues that we'll all have to watch going forward. We covered a lot of territory in this podcast, reviewing education tax incentive opportunities and challenges. Before we wrap things up, we want to make sure you take away some of these key points. First, education incentives apply to both payment of education costs and saving for education costs. Interest on U.S. savings bonds may be partially or fully excluded if redeemed to pay higher education costs, assuming certain requirements are met. Coverdell ESAs provide only limited opportunity for education savings because of the limit on annual contributions. Tax credits apply only for higher education purposes. An above-the-line deduction for higher education cost can be claimed by those with income below set limits. And lastly, Coverdell ESAs and qualified U.S. savings bonds may be rolled over to a Section 529 Qualified Tuition Plan. And that concludes this CCH CPE podcast. As a reminder, if you're interested in earning valuable continuing professional education credits, please enroll in this course at our CPE podcast website at cchpodcast.com. In our next CCH CPE podcast, we'll focus on another area of importance for your practice and we'll provide commentary on some current developments that can be useful to your clients. We thank you for listening to this podcast, and we hope you have found our discussion valuable and interesting. And on this note, we'll bring this CCH CPE podcast to a close. Until our next podcast, goodbye and good luck in your work. CCH CPE podcasts are published to promote sound thought in economic, legal, and accounting principles relating to tax and business law. CCH's editorial policy is to allow frank discussion in these areas. The opinions and interpretations expressed are those of the authors. CCH is not engaged herein in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services, and the authors are not offering such advice in this program. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.